Mindfulness Mode, Episode 500. The statistic is one in three women will face abuse in her lifetime. That means every third woman you meet in the world will have faced abuse. Hey, Mindful Tribe, so good to have you here. And can you believe it? We've hit 500 episodes. I I am so excited. And you have made it possible with your support, Mindful Tribe, by being a faithful Mindfulness Mode listener and by sharing, telling your friends about Mindfulness Mode and, and just getting word out there. And to celebrate, I'm giving out Mindfulness Mode t-shirts to any of you who do a review on Apple Podcasts. All you have to do is do that review, send me an email with a short note about why you like the show and include a copy of your review in the email. Free t-shirts all around to celebrate 500 episodes. Just email me at bruce at mindfulnessmode.com. Oh, and listen to the end of today's episode and you'll hear how you can meet Edgar. So yeah, stay tuned for that. Today, for the 500th episode, I chose an interview featuring a woman who is determined to make a difference in the world. She is so passionate. She has devoted her life to helping women and girls who have been abused. And she was abused herself. I mean, it's a very poignant episode. I think you'll be impacted by this chat that we had. Sit back, relax, and enjoy today's interview with Indrani Goradia. Mindful Tribe, I'm so glad you joined today because we are here for a heartfelt conversation, for a deep, deep conversation about a topic that is so important and a topic that is not talked about so much sometimes because it's too tough to talk about. It's too difficult for us. The topic is about domestic violence. And my guest is Indrani Garadia. And Indrani is making a huge difference in the world. Indrania, thank you so much for being here with us today. Are you in mindfulness mode today, Indrani? Bruce, I'm going to tell you a little secret. I'm almost always in mindfulness mode, and I'll tell you more about that later on. And for anyone who just heard that and rolled their eyes, I want you to know that I was almost never in mindfulness mode for the first 55 years of life. So there's hope. Wow. 55 years. And that surprises me right there because I wouldn't have thought that you were at that No, point. no. That's only the first 55. I am 66. Oh, wow. Wow. And you've done such incredible things. I want to share. Indrani Garadia is a speaker. She's an activist and she's doing so much on the subject of domestic violence. She personally survived severe childhood abuse and as a result has devoted her life to speaking up about the devastating effects of sexual abuse. And she's invested significant resources to end violence to women and girls. Her work has resulted in ending generational violence in her lifetime. And this is powerful. She's created a foundation that works with caregivers at sexual and domestic violence shelters. And that foundation is now called Raft cares you can go to raft 
raftcares.org, R-A-F-T cares.org. Indrani, what does mindfulness mean to you? Bruce, let me take a breath and let me experience that question. And that's the beginning of what mindfulness means to me. I didn't know what question you were going to ask. And mindfulness means being present with what is in front of us. You are in front of me. The question is in front of me. And so that's the beginning, right? To be here now. I don't have a piece of paper next to me that says, aha, when Bruce says what mindfulness is, I get to read this. So long story short, mindfulness to me means being present and giving what is needed in the moment without ego. You know, it would be so easy to say, hey, Bruce, I did this and I did this and I did so many classes and that's all ego driven. That wouldn't Mm -hmm. have been mindfulness. I watched your TED talk and it had a powerful impact on me in Johnny. In that TED talk, you said the United Nations has told us about the greatest public health threat facing us today. And that once it was malaria, once it was HIV AIDS, once it was Ebola. But today, it is violence against women and girls. I mean, that is just devastating to hear it. And that it has reached plague proportions. Why have we arrived here? Why is this become such a devastating problem? The easy answer is, oh, it's always been there. Oh, it's tradition. Oh, it's culture. The harder answer is, it's because we allow it to happen. So let me give you a little story. Mm -hmm. In November of 2019, I believe it was November 7th, in the New York Times, a woman named Jennifer Shallot was found in her home, decapitated, and her five-year-old was decapitated, and the abuser hung himself. That woman, Jennifer, she had been seeking help for years from abuse. And she never got it. She tried to get a divorce and he would tear up the papers. She thought if she, these are my words now, maybe she thought if she played nice that he would let her leave. He never intended to let her leave. You know what? Bruce, she worked at an arm of the United Nations. Her job was teaching other women not to accept abuse and how to be safe. And this woman was a victim. So the short answer is many people along the way knew about stuff and it happened anyway. As a society, we continue to allow it. The statistic is one in three women will face abuse in her lifetime. That means every third woman you meet in the world will have faced abuse. You know what else it means? Every third man or every third intimate partner has delivered violence. Why are we not doing anything about it? 
Why is it not on everybody's mind? Why do we just say, ah, it's only domestic violence? Police responded to another domestic violence. Ah, crazy people. No, not crazy. They're all around us. It's an attitude. It's a culture. I know that you are from Trinidad. And you said that in Trinidad, there's a saying, sharing licks. Yeah. It's not a saying that I was familiar with. But so I'll, I'll tell you what tell that us. means. So to be licked, L-I-C-K-E-D, is not, it's not a movement with a tongue. It is uh, an action with a body part, an arm that has a weapon, a belt, a stick, a shovel, as you could have seen from the TED Talk. So sharing licks means sharing the beatings. And if my little brother got in trouble, all of us, there are three of us, we would all get licks. Because if you could share the licks to everybody, it might preempt a child making a mistake tomorrow. We know that's not, that that can't be true. Also, if you made a mistake a month ago, you could still get licks for the rest of your life for that mistake because being children, it was not allowed. Children are supposed to make mistakes. Children are supposed to spill milk. Children are supposed to leave their toys scattered. Children are supposed to talk in class when they're told to be silent. It's what children do. It is the parent, it is the adult who is not able to step into true maturity to help a child understand behavior. Sharing licks and beating people up, that is not the answer. No, it's definitely not the answer. And this belief that seems to be prevalent, this is for your own good. This is hurting me more than it's hurting you. You know, this is, these are phrases that we hear. Yeah. Oh my gosh. Let's talk about this. (laughs) So Bruce, you know, one of the biggest lies that I have ever heard from the time I was a child was, this hurts me more than it hurts you. I'm beating you for your own good. You made me do it. All of those were lies. Yes. I, did, I didn't know there were lies until I was well into my 30s. By the way, what I didn't say in the TED Talk was I was not aware that I was abused until I had my first child and I wanted to abuse that kid. Up until, and I had my first kid at 31. Okay. So up until then, I knew that I had had a rough childhood, mm-hmm. but I thought I deserved it. I thought I was a bad kid. Yeah. Yeah, I was beaten. Yeah, everybody was beaten. And lucky for me, I did not marry an abuser. Yes. Yeah, so lucky. Yes. And But it wasn't something I was uh, asking before marriage, right? I wasn't saying, oh, by the way, do you think you have the right to abuse me and your children? I just got lucky. You just got lucky. Around the world and the different cultures, do you think there are some cultures that really don't believe this very much, that it's not so prevalent as it is in some other cultures? In the Scandinavian countries, 
I see a lot of empathy and compassion, a lot of patience. And I'll tell you how I have observed that. It's not from a study that I read. It's from having been to those countries and walking on the streets and seeing parents walking children home from school and children doing what children doing and not hearing a single raised voice. Right. Not a single raised voice. Even parents standing at a street corner waiting to cross the street and the child is pulling and tugging, not hearing a single mean or sarcastic word. And furthermore, what I see a lot in the Scandinavian countries is parents crouching down to the level of the child and speaking into their ear. That is so cool. Yes. Uh, the first time I saw that, I stood there and I got tears in my eyes because I thought, wow, if I had been parented like that, how, what could I have done in the world? Wow. I mean, I wasted 55 years of not knowing how to be fully formed and, and showing up mindfully as an adult, right? Right. What if, what if in my thirties, I knew how to do that? And how would I have parented differently? Because I made a ton of mistakes. I didn't hit, but I was still screaming and yelling because I didn't know that that was abuse. I see. You said that girls who are abused grow up to expect and accept abuse. And to abuse their children like you wanted to do, like you just almost, almost did. I almost and did. And they think violence is love. Yeah. Like, how does that transfer into thinking violence is love? Well, you know, as a kid, right, you're being mm -hmm. beaten and you're being told, I'm doing this because I love you. Yeah. So as a child, your mind is so innocent and you just want... You want to accept and know that this person to whom you, you are indebted for everything, your clothing, your shelter, a drink of water, food, comfort, that this person, know, they have to know what they're talking about because they're so big and you're so little. So that must be correct. If you love me and you're beating me, it has to mean I deserve it. Therefore, when I grow up and I meet someone who does not hit me, it has to mean they don't love me enough. Wow. Wow. And, you know, interesting that you mentioned that, you know, parents often say, this is my house. This is how I do things. This is what I'm entitled to do. And, you know, this whole attitude, I own you as I, a child and I have every right to do what I want to you as a child. Completely untrue. That is not true in the human race. We don't own each other. We don't own our children. I think that's a complete falsehood, but it's something that many people believe, isn't it? Yes. And Bruce, I have a smile on my face because this never occurred to me what I'm going to tell you until this moment. What if we assumed 
that we only were borrowing our children for a I short do while. Assume that. And and we we didn't know how short the while was, right? So if a child leaves home at 18, we borrowed them for 18 years. Yeah. If a child goes off to boarding school at 13, we borrowed them for 13 years. If a child chooses to marry at 25 and leaves the town where they grew up in, we got to borrow them for 25 years. What if we were only borrowing each other? I just love that. And I also love to think that I was gifted with that person. My son is the most precious and the most beautiful gift that my wife and I have been not given, but lent. And he's just been such a, an absolute pleasure to, to be with and to have the opportunity to teach and to set examples for. And in September, he went off when he was 18 years old to university. And I was fortunate enough to be able to interview him on the day before he went. Oh, lovely. And at the end of the interview, and we didn't talk about this ahead of time, but the end of the interview, he said, well, I want to say thanks, dad. Thanks for being the kind of father you've been. And I, and I thank my mother too. And it's been, it's been great. He says, because he looked at it the same way, you know, because we have a special relationship, you know, I'm crying. You people can hear our voices, but Bruce, you can see my face and I don't know if I wore waterproof mascara. So it might start looking a little horrific. <laughs> well, you told a story in your TED Talk, which I found very impactful. And that was about your son when he was a young boy and he was ha- you were having problems and he was like being a typical young boy yeah. and he was full of mischief and, and so on. And, and your father said, oh, I'll take care of this. Oh. I'll take care of this. And you tell us the story. Yeah, so... Uh, you know, in the TED Talk, you have 17 minutes. So here I have yeah. a little more time. Let me yeah. set the scene. I think it was about three or four. And he was full of energy and full of life. Of mm-hmm. course, when he was three or four, those were not the words I used, right? <laughs> right? So right. if he ever listens to this, I'm apologizing a million times. I, I apologize again. I... I had tried everything. I had tried cookies. I had tried, I used to keep a a closet of matchbox cars. And so I would go and I probably tried giving him three or four. Nothing was working. Mm -hmm. He was, something was happening and he was angry and he was letting me know with his voice, with his body, with his actions, with his face. And my father saw me struggling and he said, and you know, my dad was from Trinidad. So I'll, I'll tell you in the Trinidad voice, don't worry, I could take care of this, which meant don't worry, I'll handle it. And my dad lifted his arm as if to strike. And my son who had never been hit in his life, In his world, anytime somebody lifts their hand, they have a question. So he stopped all his fussing and he said, Appa, he called his grandfather Appa, Appa, 
do you have a question? <laughs> Bruce, I, I looked at that whole scene and I thought, oh my God, I'm winning. I'm winning this no violence thing because he didn't know that that was a threatening stance. And my father, who was also beaten in his life, he was not the abuser in our home. Mm-hmm. He, he looked at me and he said, what happened to that boy? <laughs> Meaning, <laughs> what, what is wrong with him? And I said with a big grin on my face, Dad, he has never been struck in his world. Any adult who raises their hand must have a question. Do you have a question? <laughs> wow, and that's... I think it broke the trance of anger that my son was in because I don't remember what happened after that. Maybe I just scooped him up and gave him all the cookies and all the ice cream he could eat. I don't know. But that was, for me, that was the moment when I knew I was winning. Yeah. Wow. That, that is a beautiful story. <laughs> it really is. And, you know, there are moments in time, I think, when we we know we're winning or we know we've sort of past that point. And one with me, if I could tell a little story, is that my son was my uh, podcast editor for three years. And so he would sit beside me here at my desk in my studio and he'd be working away. And like any time with your child, uh, he was a teenager, of course, but you know, there were times when I'd get kind of frustrated and I kind of feel that feeling like, oh, for heaven's sakes, you know, and I might want to say something even stronger than that. And I my my main thing in my mind was that I want this to be a positive experience. I don't want it to be negative in any way. And I don't want there to be verbal, um, you know, meanness or, or negativity even. And so I just meditated on it, basically. And I thought to myself, you know what, Bruce? Anytime you ever feel that feeling, you know, festering up in your chest and that feeling that you, you're going to say something that's not very nice, I, I said, I'm just going to say in my mind, okay, it's time to stand up and give my son a hug and say, you know, I just love you, Ben, no matter what. <laughs> and I know it sounds crazy because he was a teenager. But after a couple of times, he kind of got used to it. And you know what? I didn't need to do it that many times. Yeah. After after a while, I I realized that I could identify the emotions. And then I'd realize that, you know what? If he was having trouble with the editing or he made a mistake on, on the computer or whatever, it's the exact same mistake I could have made myself. You know, it wasn't exclusive to him. And after after all, he was probably better, far better on the computer than I was. So we kind of made a joke out of it. Every once in a while, I would stand up and he'd kind of look at me and, oh, I guess it's time for a hug. You know? <laughs> and then we'd give each other a hug. And I still say to him, you know, remember one thing, Ben, I love you. Yeah. And, you know, I just want to be able to express that. Uh, Bruce, I want to add on to that and say that when I turned 55, 56, 57, and I'm now 66, I started realizing that I was closer to the finish line Mm -hmm. than I was to the start line. Mm 
right? Mm -hmm. And I don't mean to say that in a morbid way. It's the truth. I don't want to live another 66 years. No. And so I started to think, since I don't know where the finish line is, when I meet someone and when I speak to people, what if this is the last time? Yes. And so that's really mindful. And I might still be angry. Maybe there's a thing that's going on and because I get to be human. And often I will just think to myself, Indrani, you have to choose words that if this is the last time and you are gone, they have something kind to remember. And if they are gone, I get to tell myself the last time I spoke to that person, I was kind. Because we don't know. How, so how many times have we heard, oh my gosh, my blah, blah, blah. And I didn't speak to them for so long. And the last thing I said was, I hate you. I hope blah, blah. And then they died. And then yeah. for the rest of your life, you think, I never got a chance. I never got a chance. I never got mm -hmm. a chance. Mm -hmm. What if we all stopped saying that? What if we all stopped spitting out nasty? You don't have to spit out kind, just not the nasty. It might work. Yes, you're so right. You're so right. Ten years ago, Andrani, you started your foundation. Yes. Tell me what your goal was and why you started the foundation and how, if any, that goal has changed. Oh, boy. <laughs> how long do you have? Okay. <laughs> the truncated version. I started the foundation because... My second child, my last child, so when she was in eighth grade, I knew it was coming, right? And I had stayed home as a housewife for almost 27 years. And I thought, okay, I, I was able to end generational violence and it was so hard and I had the resources and I had, I wasn't married to an abuser and I could take classes and we had vacations and perfect storm of good, right? And it was still so hard. So what have I learned that maybe I could help another parent not abuse their child? And that's why I started the foundation. And then I thought, well, where am I going to meet parents who might have experienced abuse or abused themselves? And the answer was clear. Well, they're in shelters. And the reason they're in the shelter is because they're looking for help. So that was the low-hanging fruit. Look for people who are already looking for help. And I started to go into the shelters, trying to do workshops for the clients, for the mm -hmm. victims. But they wouldn't show up. They, I would, I remember one time I came back from India just to do a workshop the next day. So I made myself not have jet lag and had, you know, six cups of coffee in the morning. I went to the shelter. Nobody showed up. Oh, wow. And that was the moment I thought, okay, Andrani, something is wrong. You just spent extra money to change your ticket. You were told 12 people would be in the class. 
not a single person showed up. Wow. Okay, so now what? So then I flipped it and I started to do the classes for the shelter staff. And this was my, my new theory. If we could teach the staff or help the staff to find balance and to be mindful and to have the skills of knowing how to say no and recognizing shame and, and knowing the, the, the four tenets of empathy, then they will show up at home as better family members and parents and spouses, and they will show up at work as more invested employees, and they will teach the clients what they, what they learned. And that's where we shifted. It took us about four, three and a half, four years to make that shift. And then it took us another two years to convince shelters to send their, their staff. Now, now we're getting calls. Hey, I heard you did that shelter and that shelter. And, and for the first time last year, at the end of the year, we already had stuff set up for 2020. And that just made us smile because that was hard work to get people to realize that we were actually offering, and for free, we don't charge, we were offering not, not a lifeline, but a set of lifelines with all the skills that we teach. And once you learn it, you know it. It's a matter of practicing it. Yes, absolutely. I know that you spoke at the World Women's Health and Development Forum at the United Nations, and that must have been quite an experience. Can you tell us some speaking events you've been at that had a real impact on you? Uh, So that UN event, when I was invited, I had so little um, confidence in myself. I said to the woman, what, are you scraping the bottom of the barrel? Like, why are you inviting me? Yes. I just saw your face shocked. I did. I, I, I want to tell people that I never assume that I'm all that. So Mm -hmm. she said, no, we want you because this is about violence. And now you've turned, you've turned your family around and now you're in, now you're a philanthropist doing work to end violence. That morning, I was standing at someone's kitchen sink and thinking, I'm so nervous. I'm da 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 da. I'm I'm, I'm that. My and I was anything but mindful, right? My Mm -hmm. brain was going crazy, and I realized in that moment that somewhere in the world, a woman who had just been beaten was washing something in a river or getting water from a well, or trying to cook on a, on a fire that's made of sticks mm-hmm. for her children, having just been raped or beaten. And I thought, Indrani, behave yourself. Get out of your way. You have been asked because you have to take those voices to the UN, those women who don't even know what the UN is, 
who will never get a chance to sit at those tables. Behave yourself and take them. And so that was very impactful to me. And the other big thing was I spoke at Women Deliver, which is a huge uh, um, conference every three years that focuses on all the aspects of of health around the world. I spoke there in, I I believe, 2015. But in 2012, I had seen some article on online that talked about this conference called Women Deliver. And Melinda Gates was speaking there. And I thought, oh boy, I will never be important enough to even attend that conference. And to speak, forget about it. So when I was asked to speak at Women Deliver three years later or four years later, I thought, what craziness is this? Like, how is this universe just taking my words and flipping it on its head? And those were the two big things that I thought. And, and of course, the TED Talk, right? Delivering it in, in my home country. How, do, how is this happening? And, and the short answer is, I'm following, I'm following the thread that started in my childhood about violence, and it's the only thing I want to do, and it's not about ego, it's about can my great-great-grandchild live in a violence-free world? That's it. That's it. Wow. <laughs> wow. I know it's so easy to find you online at indranigaradia.com. I-N-D-R-A-N-I is how you spell Indrani, Garadia, G-O-R-A-D-I-A, Indrani, Garadia.com. Thank you. And uh, yeah, so Mindful Tribe, check out the website. Indrani, I want to ask you uh, about your your hobbies. I know that you're a triathlete and a marathoner. How does this help deliver mindfulness in your life and help you to achieve your goals? Bruce, the only way to do 26.2 miles is one breath at a time. And that's the ultimate mindful practice, right? When I did my first triathlon, well, I only did one. When I did that first race, I decided that I wanted to live. So I did it at 50 years old. And before 50, at 49 and a half, my depression had been diagnosed. And I got onto meds. And I remember saying to my therapist, what, why am I not feeling anxious? And he said, ah, the meds are working. He said, it's a brain chemistry thing. And I said to him, can I live like this for the rest of my life? And he said, only if you want to. That's the ultimate mindful statement. Only if you want to. I wanted to. So I learned how to swim. And I did an Olympic distance triathlon. And I was dead last. And to be dead last in a race where you swim a mile, you bike 25 miles and you run six miles, is one breath, one step, one tear, one breakdown at a time. 
to just get to the finish line. And it's a huge accomplishment. <laughs> Even if you are last, it's a wonderful, wonderful accomplishment to have completed it. Am I right? Oh, uh, so I have to tell you, um, when I came back home with my medal, I walked around my town with my medal as if it was an Olympic gold medal. I went right. to the grocery with it. I went everywhere with it. And people thought I was crazy. But I was at the age of 50 years and three days, I was an Olympic triathlete in my wildest dreams. I never saw that happening. Bruce, I have to tell you that as I was training, I started meditation and yoga. Mm. And so my training involved, the, of course, the physical practice, um, meditation, yoga and massage. Because mm -hmm. my intention, my mindful intention was to finish injury-free, right? Last, but injury-free. Right. And since then, when I turned about 55, I started something which I alluded to in the pre-chat that we had. I started a gratitude journal. And every night, my gratitude journal is about this big. Mm -hmm. about five by six, okay. I write at least three or four things that I'm grateful for that day. And some days I can only write, I'm grateful that I didn't yell. Mm. I'm grateful that I controlled my facial expression and didn't show my anger. I'm grateful that I held my tongue some days were so hard when I first started. That's all I could be grateful for. And now it's things like, I'm grateful I didn't yell. <laughs> I'm grateful. Mm -hmm. like It's the same stuff, right? Yeah. It, because I'm still human. Uh, th there's a little story, you know, somebody says, Master, you know, I've, I've done all the work for enlightenment. I carried the water and I did the this and I picked up the sticks. What happens after enlightenment? He says, that's such a good question. You carry water, you pick up the sticks and you do everything else. It's the same stuff. <laughs> same, yes. <laughs> oh, that's so funny. <clears throat> yeah, that is really funny. Indrani, you know that I work in bullying prevention. Do you have a story that you could share with us? I don't know whether you have a story about being a bully where mindfulness would have made a difference or some other kind of story. Could you share something with us? Yes. So immediately I want to go to cyberbullying. Okay. And cyberbullying and violence to women are very, very connected. Yes. I was teaching in a rural village in India about three years ago. Mm -hmm. And the sweetest young woman came up to me and said, uh, can I talk to you? And but she didn't want to talk in the class. So I invited her back to the hotel and we had a small safe space. She had been dating someone and that person had left the country, but had bullied her into setting up a webcam and sending naked photos of herself to him who was in a whole other country. Oh my God. And she, he had bullied her to the extent where she wasn't allowed to sleep at night, but to be on camera the entire night. And then she had to work the next day. 
So she's telling me all of this and I'm looking at her and I'm looking at this beautiful 23-year-old woman. And I said, "Uh, so why do you do it? Well, he said, if I didn't do it, I don't love him. Mm. So then we start to talk about love and what love means. And I cannot say that my words made a difference. I can tell you that I asked questions like, what does love mean to you? And would you do this to someone? If you were a man, would you do this to someone? And would you want this to be done to your little sister? And things like that to open up the world of of that victim. And so I think bullies try to make victims only focus on them. And anti-bullying is in the realm of opening up the whole world and telling the victim, this bully is not on your side. This bully does not have your best interest at heart. This bully wants to make your life miserable. What do you want for your life? I wish I could say that cyberbullying doesn't happen anymore, but Bruce, you and I know differently. So for anybody listening, if you are being cyberbullied, it is a crime. And a lot of police stations will take a report. Try to get the bully to say something online that you could, you know, have a thread and start the process of of reporting. And that's my most poignant memory of somebody being bullied. Well, thank you for sharing that, Indrani. It's very, very disturbing, you know, when you talk about that, because we know that this sort of thing goes on, but to hear an actual story about a situation, that's just awful. As we move forward, Indrani, I want to ask you five quick answer questions. So just 30 second answers are perfect. The first one is this, who is one person who has influenced mindfulness in your life? Nelson Mandela. Mm. Forgive, 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 forgive. If he could forgive after 27 years, what is my excuse? <laughs> yeah. yeah, so true. How has mindfulness affected your emotions, Indrani? I have a greater range of emotions now. Instead of being okay or rageful, now I have slightly disappointed, a little bit disturbed, uh, regretful. I am more emotionally aware of, of what I'm feeling. Tell us how breathing is a part of your mindfulness? When I don't know what to say, I still know how to breathe. Mm. I still know how to breathe. And breath is a gift we all get just because we're alive. It certainly is. If you could recommend a book related to mindfulness, what would that be? Radical Compassion. I think it's by Tara Brock or by Pema Children. I'm not sure. Radical compassion. Radical compassion. And do you have an app that you could recommend? Is there an app that you could recommend to people to help with mindfulness? I'm sorry, I don't. But we do have meditations on our website. Okay. That sometimes are short and maybe one minute, maybe two minutes, maybe sometimes four minutes. At night, you could listen and hear my voice and go to bed. 
And what a great app that is at indranigaradia.com. Wow, it has been really powerful having the opportunity to talk to you. I am so honored to have you on the show, Indrani, and so impressed with what you've done in the world to help other people and to help change this culture. Thanks for caring. Thank you for noticing. Thank you for caring. And I promise you, I will never give up. I, your, your baby boy is Ben. We need a world free of violence for Ben, his children, his grandchildren, your great grandchildren. We need Ben to be in a world where he doesn't have to worry. I totally agree. Thank you so much for joining us. All the best to you, Andrani. Big hugs. Yes, big hugs. Bye now. Thanks so much for joining us today on Mindfulness Mode. For show notes for every episode, check out mindfulnessmode.com and type the guest's name or the episode number into the search bar. You can also go mindfulnessmode.com slash whatever episode number you like. If you've enjoyed this podcast, you could help us out by subscribing to Mindfulness Mode wherever you listen, whether it's on iTunes or Stitcher, Google Play, Spotify, so many places you can hear Mindfulness Mode. So hit subscribe and share because that truly helps our show. So remember what I said at the top of the show about Meet Edgar and how that tool can help you with your social media content so much. Check it out and get, like I said, the second month free. You already get the first month free. Get the second month free with this with this uh, URL. Go to mindfulnessmode.com forward slash Edgar, E-D-G-A-R. So remember, subscribing and sharing helps keep mindfulness mode on the air. Till next time, Mindful Tribe, use what we've learned today to reach new heights of calm, focus, and happiness. Stay in the mode.